I'm Amy Antonucci, welcoming you to our True Tales Live Zoom show on March 30th, 2021. Thanks to those watching and listening, and especially those here in our live online audience. Yay! Our mission at True Tales Live is to provide a space where people can tell their first person experience stories. Stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity, and we hope help us bridge differences, building respect and understanding for all. We are so happy to be here with you on Zoom. And we do have some suggestions for making the most out of this online format. Since we believe storytelling to be an exchange between tellers and listeners, here's how you can help us keep that going while we're not in person. If you keep your video on, you can have big physical reactions in order to connect with the rest of the audience and the tellers. And I'm gonna have you practice with me. All right, ready? Everybody cheer. Yay. Now express appreciation. And now Pat just made a hysterical comment. So laugh at it. Uh. All right, well done. So keep that going. And of course, the other place you can be expressive is in the chat box, which we do save and share with the tellers later, and they really appreciate that. Also put questions you have for the tellers in the chat, because after all of the stories, we will do some Q&A. Tonight's show has the theme of activism. We'll hear stories from Bill Thompson, Arnie Alpert, and myself. MC Pat Spaulding will tell us more. Join me in demonstratively welcoming Pat. Yay, Pat. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm going to start by introducing our announcer who just introduced me, <laughs> Amy Antonucci. She's of Barrington, New Hampshire, is a founding member of True Tales Live and the True Tales Storytelling Workshop Program. She is also involved in agriculture, the arts, and activism. Here in the seacoast of New Hampshire, Amy is organized around gender equality, global justice, peace, and U.S. foreign policy, and environmental issues since 1990s. Organizations that she currently works with include New Hampshire Peace Action and Combatants for Peace, Seacoast Permaculture, and Northeast Organic Farming Association. She is also tends her bees, poultry, goats, and gardens. That's a nice picture, huh? At her homestead, teaches sacred circle dance and Middle Eastern frame dancing. Amy believes in the power of people and stories to transform our world. I think we all want to contribute something positive to the world, make an impact, and often wonder how to best do that. This is the story of Amy's struggle to figure that out. It's titled, A Tree in the Forest. Okay, Amy. Thank you, Pat. By the time I was in my early 20s, I knew what I most wanted was to make a difference in the world. I'm not sure how I came to that understanding. Maybe 
It was from watching my own mother struggle to find purpose in her life, but instead feel blocked. First by economics, then by having little children, and then by having chronic progressive multiple sclerosis. Maybe it was from seeing my father feel trapped by his job, working as a physicist for the US Air Force, despite really being a peacenik at heart. He usually worked on radar, which was fine, but I remember when he was transferred to the MX Missile Project, he would come home and collapse into a chair, head in his hands muttering, torn between being able to provide for his children and disabled wife and be able to look himself in the mirror. Or maybe it was from my own desperate desire growing up to fix problems in my family, problems that really no kid could do much about. However I came to it, I knew how much I wanted to live a life of purpose that helped others. But how? In college, I started studying psychology and social work, and I even found some part-time work as a counselor in a group home for mentally ill adults. But I was soon really frustrated by how little I felt like I could influence the larger systems that worked against the people I was seeing. I didn't feel like I could make any difference. While still in college, I joined the Campus Violence Against Women Prevention Program helped with Take Back the Night Marches and join the food co-op. I had posters, posters copied at Kinko's in Durham. I worked hard and pushed myself to do things I didn't even think I could. But how did I know if I was making a difference? After graduating, I found myself drawn to work on environmental and global justice issues. I started working on an organic farm in the seacoast here in New Hampshire. I joined an affinity group reviving activism against nuclear power. In their office, I answered phones, I stuffed envelopes for mailings, and I made more copies at Kinko's, now in Portsmouth. I worked hard, but some days I wondered if I was killing more trees than I was saving with all those copies. How did I know if I was making a difference? I was also feeling challenged to accomplish anything at all in my life because I was having health problems of my own. Things like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, migraine headaches, issues that weren't life-threatening but had no easy answers or cures and really slowed me down. Mainstream treatments weren't, you know, there weren't that many and alternative medicine was expensive. And I, I just didn't I didn't want to spend my life as a patient like I'd watch happen to my mother as her MS worsened. Then I heard about Julia Butterfly. In Northern California, there was a battle going on over logging the last of the old growth redwoods. The group Earth First held rallies and press conferences and direct actions to protect the trees. They organized these tree sits in which people would actually live in the endangered trees in order for them to not be able to cut them down. Usually these lasted for days, weeks, but Julia Butterfly had spent over a year so far in one tree, which she'd named Luna. More than once, loggers had come with their equipment, 
but they left when they just couldn't get her down. Her, her action was attracting a lot of attention and being reported on really all over the planet. A fellow activist was helping me at the, at the farm and told me about Julia as we weeded the strawberries. See, he said, one person can make a difference. At the same time, my best friend Nicole moved to California. It just seemed like obvious what I was supposed to do. That winter during the non-farming season, I would go to the Redwoods and I would stand in the way of the chainsaws too. I gathered my camping gear, lots of Gore-Tex and wool with winter in the California rainforest in mind. I moved my stuff into storage, convinced a friend to cat sit for Turtle and Willie while I was away. I said goodbyes to friends, the guy I had just started dating, and my parents, who thought it was too dangerous and urged me to stay home. I had one more doctor's appointment. I told him, I'm going to California to sit in a tree. My body may not be working right, but it can still do some good. When I got to California, I stayed at first with Nicole in Sacramento, then I borrowed her car and hit the road through San Francisco to the coast and then north. Driving nonstop was way too much for my back, but there were public beaches and national parks where I could take a walk and spend the night. The ocean was just amazing to my left as I drove those crazy winding cliff roads. Then I reached the redwoods. I have always loved trees. I was an avid climber as a kid, scrambling up the big maples and hemlocks higher than anyone else in the, in the neighborhood, feeling safe above it all. I now loved walking in the woods, my feet on the ground. But the young New England forests just were not like this. Everyone knows individual redwoods are huge, but it was more than that. The feel of the forest floor underfoot, the ferns and the moss gently dripping, the quiet. There was this feeling of interconnectedness and of being held by something that was vast in size and in time. It was ancient and wise and much bigger than any one tree and much bigger than me. I felt welcomed and honored to be there. I reached Arcata, California. This was in the 90s. No one had cell phones, GPS, or even their own laptop. I stopped at a gas station for directions, and then I found it, the Earth First headquarters. I knocked on the door, heard a muffled response, and pushed in. I entered an office of sorts. There were unmatched desks, chairs, and couches, posters covering the walls from past marches, rallies, and campaigns. Most of the people there were young, in their 20s like me. They looked more like folks I met at my farming conferences than one might expect in an office setting. A man approached me. Hey, what's up? Can I help you? I barely knew where to start. All this time, planning, traveling, and then I was there. Well, I work on environmental issues back on the East Coast, but I've just been so inspired by your work. 
that when I had the chance to come out here, I, I just did it. I'm here to help put me to work. Well, hey, that's really cool. We can always use any help we can get. That's for sure. Awesome. So is there an action going on? Like a tree sit? I'm not the toughest person physically, but I came with camping gear, warm clothes. I doubt I could last a year, but a week or two. I've already been trained in nonviolent action back home. My new friend sighed, looked down, and seemed to deflate. Right. Here's the thing. Do you have any idea how much work the rest of us have to do to support each person out there in a tree? Organizing food and supplies for them, keeping track of what's going on with them, talking to media and the public. Plus, we have even fewer people down here on the ground to do all the other work that they left behind. I get that it seems exciting and important, but here's the truth. What I really need is someone to go to Kinko's and make copies for me. This was not what I wanted to hear, but I did know what he was talking about. By now, after years of activist work, I understood that every hour in the spotlight or quote in the paper by one person was supported by hours, days, months of work by many unrecognized others. People who themselves probably didn't know if they'd made a difference. So maybe one person didn't create change. Maybe the point was that it was only together as a community that we could do so. When each of us brought our maybe sometimes small, but totally necessary piece and then trusted others to do the same. If I was going to go up against systems so much bigger than me, my individual effect might not ever be obvious. It would be my challenge to learn to live with not being sure of my impact, to instead accept the frustrating magic of being a part of something bigger than I am, like a tree in the forest. So I went to Kinko's and I got those posters made. Instead of being up in the trees like Julia Butterfly and Luna, I walked the streets of Arcata for days hanging them up. Well, I let these deeper realizations sink in like rain on the forest floor. And then I came back home to New Hampshire, where still, 25 years later, even when I have been the one quoted in an article or arrested in an action or who spoke at the rally, I have also been the one to go to Kinko's, now FedEx office, get those posters printed, then hit the streets to make sure they are hung where they can be seen and make a difference. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. That was uh, terrific. I think <laughs> you inspired our hearts with a description of the redwood tree. I mean, who doesn't want to be one of those? Yes, Julia Butterfly, but we can't all be. We can just support her. Thank you. Maybe we'll talk a little more about that at the Q&A. And now, next up, we have Bill Thompson. He lives in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. 
He's married with grandkids, a retired labor lawyer and US government executive. Bill now spends his free time pursuing certain other interesting things like being a certified spiritual advisor or director and amateur iconographer. I think that's the way you pronounce it. And representing undocumented people in immigration proceedings. His story tonight will take us back to a nonviolent sit-in in 1971. <laughs> ah, yes, I remember it well. Another heart connection there. The title of his story is Chained and Squirming. Okay, Bill, we're ready. Okay, thank you. Hi, everybody. Um, so, as, uh, as she said, it was 1971. Uh, I was a, a law school student at Columbia University in New York, and we all know that it was the Vietnam era. Uh, I was a member of another affinity group uh, that was associated with something called the New York Regional Students and Professors Against the War, really boring name. Uh, there were about 15 or 20 of us, uh, pretty much grad student types. And when they invaded uh, Cambodia in the spring of 1971, almost exactly 50 years ago, it was May, uh, we decided we needed to do something spectacular. Um, so we came up with the plan to do a sit-in at the uh, Security Council at the United Nations and chain ourselves to the uh, Security Council. And obviously that would uh, be news around the world. We would be arrested. We would be paraded out in front of the cameras on the UN Plaza, taken away in the paddy wagons. It was all very exciting. So first we had to scout out sort of what, whether how we could get in there. And fortunately it was before um, the, the bombing in Oklahoma City before 9-11. So there was really no um, metal detectors, nothing like that to get into the UN. So on the appointed day, we all came in uh, from various subway stations around uh, 46th Street on the east side in Manhattan where the UN is headquartered and gathered at a prearranged location out in the plaza. We were carrying backpacks or shopping bags that held the chains, the cords, the, you know, the locks, all that stuff. Um, and uh, we were posing as tourists because we'd found out that there were uh, tours that went through the building, including to the Security Council. So we went inside, sat down. There were other tourists there. Uh, and it was about 930 in the morning. And the tour guide came in and uh, introduced herself and started the tour. So we walked through the public areas, of the building, we went to the General Assembly Hall. And finally, she said, okay, now we're going to the, uh, the Security Council. We, uh, she opens the door, we walk into the Security Council, only two policemen sort of standing off to the edge of the room we all filed into the back of a small auditorium. And at the bottom of the auditorium, there's a low stage with that famous semicircular desk that I'm sure everybody remembers from news uh, clips where the security council sits. So uh, the 
tour guide began to explain something about the Security Council. I think she was talking about who the permanent members of the Security Council were. And uh, one of us had been assigned the job of uh, the go signal. And so after we sort of had figured out that there was nothing between us and the Security Council desk, um, she said, okay, let's go. So we walked away from the tour group, down the side aisle, down to the bottom, up onto the stage and took our, our seats in the uh, staff seats right behind the mission head seat. You know, they have the chairs right around and then the chairs behind the chairs. The chairs behind the main chair are fixed to the floor. So we pulled out our chains, pulled out our cables, pulled out our locks, wound them around ourselves, wound them around the tables, chairs, and locked them. And we did it all in about 30 seconds. We were so good. So at this point, we are absolutely thrilled with ourselves, right? We turn around, look back up at the uh, back of the hall. There's the rest of the tourists, the tour guide, and two UN police, open-mouthed, wide-eyed, didn't know what to do. So at that point, uh, we thought this is a huge success. Um, they ushered out the uh, rest of the uh, tour group and you know, other police and officials started coming in and we figured, well, this is great. 15, 20 minutes, maybe an hour. We're gonna be arrested. We're gonna be paraded, you know, the whole nine yards. Um, we pulled out of our pulled out our um, leaflets, started throwing them around, and we're chanting, "Hey ho, what do you know? Tricky Dick has got to go." We always did that one because it was our favorite. We demanded to see George Bush, uh, U.S. out of Vietnam, U.N. Uh, uh, condemn U.S. aggression, yada yada yada. So this goes on for a while, and by about 10.15, 10.30, uh, we're even happier because these cops are still just standing there. So we obviously had caught them completely with their pants down. They had no idea what to do. Uh, the, the, the officials were just sort of standing there with their arms crossed, you know, uh, not saying anything. And we thought, man, this is fantastic because the, it's giving more time for the press to get here. I mean, this is great. Um, we were hot stuff. Um, so uh, this goes on and then it's 11 o'clock and um, we're starting to look at each other and it's like, hmm, uh, should have gotten here by now. Uh, by 11.30, two things happen. First, I had to pee. Um, and second, uh, we could not quite figure out what was going on. Um, so we started talking one, one another with one another in a low voice. Um, and we sort of decided that the, um, they must've thought that we were just gonna cut ourselves out and leave. So we needed to make it clear to them that that's not what was gonna happen. So one of us shouted out, we are not gonna leave until we either see George Bush or the UN condemns US aggression. And the rest of us shouted out, um, and we aren't leaving 
until that happens. We'll stay here as long as it takes. So we figured, okay, now they understand what's going on. So now they're gonna arrest us and take us out and parade us in front of the press and all that stuff. Um, nothing happened. Uh, absolute quiet. They just, people would go in and out every once in a while. No talk, no nothing, uh, no, no, no approaching us. So by about 12.30 or one o'clock, I really had to pee. And so did some of the other folks. Because um, we hadn't planned on being there that long. I shouldn't have had coffee that morning. So um, we uh, sort of talked to one another again. And uh, by about one o'clock, we were starting to ask them, when are you going to let us go? So at that point, it, it was 17 anti-war protesters are prisoners of the United Nations. It went on for another two hours. I peed in my pants. So did some other people. Shortly after, shortly after three o'clock, I mean, now we've been there seven hours, right? I mean, you know, whose bladder can handle that? Um, shortly after three o'clock, this, this guy in a suit who looks like he's important comes through the door and comes over to where we are. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, it's after 3 p.m. and public tour hours are over. So it's time for you to leave. Um, so we thought, yay, we're going to be arrested. We're going to be paraded out front. Um, well, the cops didn't make a move, nothing happened. And then comes a maintenance dude with wire cutters and you know, all the other paraphernalia. So he proceeds to cut us all loose. Um, and as the last one of us is cut loose, we're all standing you know, next to the, um, to, to, to the security council uh, dais. And the same dude says, um, please follow me. And he motioned to the door. He led us to the door, led us out through the door into the hall. The police stood by, nobody said anything, took us to the front door of the United Nations, opened the door, said goodbye, and we walked out into complete emptiness. It was no news, no paddy wagons, no arrest, and we were totally, totally shocked and totally embarrassed. And until today, I don't believe anybody else has ever tried to do a sit-in at the United Nations Security Council. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you, Bill. Talk about an activist buzzkill. <laughs> Seems like they had a bit of a plan too. <laughs> Um, we'll probably, we will find out more details about your um, pre-becoming a lawyer years and um, life since then with your interview, longer interview with David. Um, but next up, we have Arnie Alpert, who lives in Canterbury, New Hampshire, and has spent nearly four decades with New Hampshire Peace Program for the American Friends Service Committee. 
where he trained, educated, and supported the efforts to promote social justice and peace for many years. Now retired, he writes the Active with the Activists column for the online news journal In-Depth New Hampshire. His story tonight is titled Conspirator. So let's find out what this is about. Welcome, Arnie. Thank you, Pat. I'd like everybody to take a deep breath. Breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. Um, do we have any Latin scholars in the room tonight? Because I'd like to, you to translate the word conspire. As I understand it, I'm no Latin scholar, but I believe that cone means with and spire is about breathing so that when we conspire, we are breathing together. So I want to welcome you to our conspiracy this evening. Um, when a violent mob broke into the Capitol building on January 6th with mayhem on their minds, uh, I was at a meeting on Zoom, of course, with a group of people talking about how we could do a better job preparing people for nonviolent protests. And that's something I've been doing for a long time, as Pat just mentioned. Now, I have to admit it. I have engaged in conspiracies to occupy government offices where I was not invited to be there. And this is the story of one such time. This was a conspiracy so serious that I was arrested. In fact, I was arrested sitting by myself silently on the sofa in the waiting room of my United States Senator. Talk about a serious crime. But let's, I wanna go back to the back of the story here and go back in time now to 1979 when a revolution led by a group of people called the Sandinistas overthrew a US backed dictator in Nicaragua. Now a year later, Ronald Reagan got elected president and he was not too happy about the Sandinistas. Uh, and under his rule, the CIA organized former members of uh, the Nicaraguan National Guard into a paramilitary army that was known as the Contras or counter-revolutionaries. And they started waging attacks across the border from bases in Honduras and Costa Rica into Nicaragua. And uh, they particularly targeted civilians. Um, a little bit after that in 1983, um, Reagan went after another left-wing government. This was the government in the small Caribbean island of Grenada and US forces went in and overthrew the government there. And we were all worried that this was a signal that Nicaragua was going to be next. And that's how a project called the Pledge of Resistance got organized. Now the idea of the Pledge of Resistance was that we would get hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people to sign a pledge saying that if the United States were to invade Nicaragua, then we would organized demonstrations, including massive civil disobedience, much of which would involve takeovers of congressional offices because it was up to Congress, we thought, to tie the hands of the Reagan administration and keep them from backing an army of terrorists. And the idea was that this was gonna be an act of deterrence. Um, and that was, the, that, was the that was the basic idea. Now you could call it propaganda of the deed, you could call it nonviolent direct action, you could call it civil disobedience, you could even dare call it conspiracy, but this was a public conspiracy and it was totally open. 
Now, what does it take to have a proper conspiracy? You need planning, or you might say plotting. You need communication, you need training, you need recruitment, and you need to think about timing. And we did all that, and again, we did it openly. We did it in public. Now, our openness was part of our strategy, you see, because it wasn't that we were gonna do this in a sneaky way. It was that if we thought that if we could mobilize lots and lots of people to say, we are so opposed to what the Reagan administration is doing that we are going to take a risk of getting arrested and get sent to jail to show how much we care about this, that that would have a deterrent effect on the administration and keep them from invading Nicaragua. And you know what? Maybe it worked because the United States didn't invade Nicaragua, but the administration did something else for some of you who remember. Instead of invading, they continued to support the Contras. Uh, and instead of, in fact, actually, we actually moved the United States Congress to pass a law that was known as the Boland Amendment that blocked the administration from spending money through the CIA and the Defense Department on efforts to overthrow the government of Nicaragua. So what did the Reagan administration do? They started using funds through the National Security Council. That was where a guy named uh, Oliver North worked. You might remember that name. They mined Nicaragua's harbor, which was illegal under international law. They um, engaged in a trade embargo against Nicaragua, all of which was going to try to put the screws to the Sandinista government. Well, here we were in the Pledge of Resistance waiting for an invasion to trigger our action. We were all dressed up and ready to go. We decided to take action anyway, even without an invasion, that what they were doing was bad enough. So we organized demonstrations all over the country. There were, um, according to one report, there were demonstrations in 80 cities and 16 states with over 10,000 demonstrators and more than 2,000 people were arrested. In New Hampshire, we had little conspiracy groups in about a different about a dozen different towns from Keene to Plasto to Portsmouth to Wolfboro and all sorts of places in between. I bet there's some people who are in our gathering tonight who were, who were part of that. Well, I was the statewide coordinator. And what that meant was that I had to be involved in internal and external communications, thinking about training, creating and distributing organizational materials. I was also involved in a local affinity group in Concord. And we decided that we wanted to focus on the Concord office of Senator Warren Rudman. Now think about Bill's story that he just told you about their action at the United Nations Security Council. We did a training session uh, where we did a role play where we occupied Senator Rudman's office and refused to leave. And we probably chanted and all these things that Bill talked about at the United Nations. And then as we debriefed our role play, we thought about it. So like, what if, what are we there for? What are we demanding? Probably there was somebody in the role play who was pretending to be a reporter holding out a fake microphone saying, so what are you trying to accomplish here today? And we had to think about that. I said, well, what if they said, what if we said, we're not leaving until we got to talk to Senator Rudman? Well, we wouldn't have minded talking to Senator Rudman, but simply talking to Senator Rudman wasn't going to satisfy our demands or meet our concerns about what was happening in Nicaragua? Or what if we said, we're gonna not leave until you drag us out? Well, even getting arrested wasn't necessarily the point. What we realized was what we really wanted to do was communicate as well as we could the depth of our concerns about what the United States was doing to the people of Nicaragua, 
and do it in a way that Senator Rudman might change his views. He liked to appear to be a moderate, but frankly, he was not. So what we decided to do was that we would go to his office one at a time and one person in the morning and one person in the afternoon and would go in to his office, uh, introduce themselves to the Senator's staff and explain why they were there to express opposition to US policy in Nicaragua and hope that Senator Rudman would work for change and stop funding the Contras and then take a seat on the sofa in the waiting room and sit there silently for two hours, reading or praying or meditating or writing letters to the Senator or doing other things and then leave at the end of two hours. Uh, and then in the afternoon, another person would come in and do the same thing. We felt that it wasn't our goal to disrupt the Senator's office. We just wanted him to feel the weight of our concerns. So we did this for about a week. It might've even been two weeks. And at the end of this period of time, somebody went in and was handed a letter from Senator Rudman. And Senator Rudman said, I'm sorry, I can no longer allow you to continue your demonstrations in my office because by sitting there where you are, you are able to overhear confidential conversations that my staff are having with constituents and I just can't allow that. Now, the fact is that anybody who was waiting for an appointment or sitting there could overhear those same conversations didn't seem to matter. And none of us had actually noticed that we were overhearing any conversations. But we decided, well, again, it's not our intent here to be disruptive of the normal activities going on. People are trying to get their, get help getting their social security checks or get on Medicare, you know, whatever it might be. We had no interest in getting in the way of that. Um, so, but we said, as a matter of good faith, we will reduce our visitation from two people a day at two hours a pop to one person a day at one hour a pop. So we went back to the office the next week, I think it was on a Monday, and somebody went in and Xian introduced themselves, sat down on the sofa, and immediately the senator staff called the police and had that person ushered out. Well, this happened for a week, and over the course of a week, five people, including myself, were arrested at the senator's office and charged with criminal trespass. I wanna take a little detour at the moment to some theory here. Daniel Hunter is a nonviolent trainer and activist from Philadelphia, uh, somebody who you should, you should look up. Um, he says that nonviolence or active nonviolence works like a good story or what he calls a social parable. Its impact comes not from the slogans, not from the signs or the chants, the impact comes from the action itself. Daniel writes, when thinking about nonviolent direct action as a social parable, some elements are necessary to create effective actions. And he identifies four. Number one, drama and confrontation. Number two, a clear story. Three, discipline. And four, a moral tension point. Well, I think our actions at Senator Rudman's office had all of those things. But we went to court and we continued trying to tell our story in the courtroom. And four out of five of us were found guilty. We immediately appealed. We went to the superior court where the judge made this very curious ruling. He found this obscure provision in the law, something called the First Amendment, which says that we have a constitutional right to petition our elected officials for redress of our grievances. And in fact, that's what we were doing. And we were doing it in a thoroughly lawful way. So that criminal trespass charges were thrown out and I beat the rap once again. But I guess you could say I was guilty of a conspiracy to exercise my constitutional rights. Looking back this evening, I wanna share a few lessons 
One, again, thinking back to Bill's story, if you're gonna do a demonstration like this, even if you think that you might get arrested, do something that you want to be doing. I, I always tell people when I'm training, when they say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do an action and get arrested, or, is the, or people say, is this an arrestable action or a non-arrestable action? I always remind people that the decision of whether it's arrestable or non-arrestable is not made by you, it's made by the police. They decide whether or not they're going to arrest you or not. So you should be doing something you want to be doing at the time that they come in because they might not and you might be there for a while. Second, conspire openly. Um, if you're organizing on Facebook or by email or on the phone or whatever, or they might have infiltrators, the government could probably spy on what you're doing and figure it out anyway. So you might as well be open about it. And after all, we're trying to reach as many people as possible. So be open and try to educate and influence the public. Third, train and role play. Practice, practice, practice. It's the next best thing to actually doing it, to figure it out. And sometimes when you role play, you'll learn some things and that might help you adjust your strategy and tactics like we did with this action that we sometimes refer to as SofaGate. Next, if you need to be disruptive, and oftentimes we do, try to find a way to be disruptive of the injustice that you want to protest. That when you are disrupting people who are trying to get their social security checks, for example, or try to get to the post office, it doesn't necessarily help with what you're trying to do. We're trying to reach the public. We're trying to educate people. We're trying to move a public conversation in the direction that we want. Always be communicative. Let people know what you're doing and why. And if you think you might get arrested, whether you've got a great lawyer like Bill on your team or not, just get ready for what might be a long legal battle because you might be there for a while. Oh, and one more thing, take notes because someday you might want to tell a story. Thanks. Good ending there, Arnie. <laughs> Apparently you've taken a lot of notes over the years. And um, I hope that that particular conspiracy got some good attention from bringing the law into it and actually winning the case um, with a, a judge making the right decision, which is heartening. <laughs> All right. Thanks everybody for um, the stories. It's, it's now we're going to open it up to uh, a Q&A. And um, we've got a few things that came in from um, the, the chat. Now, Amy usually does these, but um, Amy, would you like to start and kind of? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so um, go ahead and if you have questions, go ahead and put them in the chat. I see some, some are starting to. Um, and we'll especially, there will be an interview of Bill in a little while. So especially probably ones for Arnie and, and me. Um, and yeah, we'll see, we'll, we'll do some Q&A here. I'll be looking in the chat. Um, Pat, do you want to get us started? Like, like she's, I think she said, we found that me asking myself questions was going to be weird and awkward. So um, Pat is helping out. So we're, we're kind of co-doing this and tripping on each other a little. Go, Pat. Okay. <laughs> we, we brought in a few photos. And Amy, you have some photos of um, some of the actions that you've been in. And I think you have a Redwoods photo. Did, did you say that? Do you want to uh, put up a few photos and we can take a look at those for 
to get started? Let's try it. Okay. Is that the thing you can see? Yes. Um, you're, somebody's hugging a tree. It doesn't look like you. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> That's it a is, big tree. It is and the, it's, it's more supposed to be more artsy than, you know. Yeah, you have so to take my word for it that it was me. Yeah. It inspired all of us as uh, the chat. People loved your description of um, going there into the woods, being part of that. Um, but since you came home, you got involved in other sorts of um, actions and not just environmental, although you're working in that. Uh, are you, do you have any photos of other things that you've done here? Sure. Um, I think a good one for me to mention for a few reasons is um, that when I came back, it wasn't much longer until we hit September 11th, 2001. And that for me was a bit of a wake up call to become more active in peace issues. And so that is a big part of what I did next. Um, and I don't know if it's going to let me show you others. I might have to back out and, and come in again. Let's see. Doo -doo -doo. You know how these go. Yeah, let's see if it'll let me show you. We'll just keep trying. Here we got one. So some of you may remember this banner. I'll bet Pat remembers this from uh, yep. Market Square. Yep. And we worked as uh, Seacoast Peace Response and a few other organizations um, on issues around the war. And I did see a, a question in the chat about my being arrested. And um, that was, here we go, it's working. This oh, yeah. is Senator, Senator Gregg's office in Newington. Um, and that's Macy Morse beside you, correct? Longtime yes. peace activist. That, yes. is, <laughs> that is the wonderful Macy Morse. She is, um, this is in March, uh, gosh, no, when it must have been the fall of 2002. What we were um, doing is having our sit-in while Senator Gregg was in the midst of um, debating, in his case, trying to convince people to vote for um, the 2003 Iraq AUMF, also known as the Authorization to Use Military Force. So this was setting the groundwork to invade Iraq. Um, I was happy to be there, felt like it was an important moment to do something. There were actually actions all over the country at the same time in different uh, senators' offices. Did you arrive there in a police car? Or was that a different uh, time that you got arrested? No, no, I, I left I left there in a police car. I did not arrive. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but Macy is consoling me because I'm terrified. It's a, the first and frankly, the only time I've been arrested. And it was me and a number of men. And I knew I'd be separated from them. And I was very, very worried about that. And then at the last minute, Macy was Macy. And she said, you know, I'm not leaving either. And now you can see how that made me feel. It's not a great picture, but uh, I'm smiling 
And it's not because I'm happy about what's happening so much. It's because I am happy Macy is coming with me. Oh, uh, yeah. And then this is this is an issue that continues to this day. Here I am with my dear friend um, who lives in Portsmouth, but grew up and whole family used to live in Iraq. And um, that was around the 10th anniversary of the start of the invasion. And last week, I was in a uh, Zoom meeting with one of my, with my senator's office staff, still working on getting the 2003, or yeah, 2002, sorry, my math is off, getting that Iraq AUMF repealed. It is still in force, still needs to get repealed, and we are still working on it, which again speaks to my both the frustration at how slow things are, but the need for persistence to make any kind of real, large, lasting change. Um, and uh, go ahead, Pat. Oh, I was just going to say, I really like that, that photo of the two women that are from different cultures and countries and backgrounds listening to each other and uh, encouraging others to do so. You just have to keep going, keep going. So do you have some um, other uh, questions that we might address for you or Arnie? Yeah, I actually have one. Oh, wait. Hold on. Where did it go? There's a lot of questions now. So let me see where it went. Arnie, Nina would like to know if you ever traveled to Nicaragua or Grenada. Um, not during that period of time, but a lot of people did. There was a, the major group was some, a project called Witness for Peace. And the idea was that if that people would go to Nicaragua and actually go to the border area where the Contra attacks were taking place and then come back home and tell stories about it. And this was a, a lot of people were, were religious people and they came back and talked to their congregations. I did not participate in one of those, but I sure went to a lot of slideshows. Amy, do you have the photo of Ash Eames and B. Damaris there? Um, if you could put that up, I'd like to show that. Um, I particularly want Eileen to see that photo. Because um, Ash yeah, Eames was an active person in Witness for Peace in New Hampshire at that time. He was the state coordinator for Witness for Peace, and he made a lot of trips to Nicaragua. And he... Um, started a project there, which initially was called Compas de la Primavera, which is the name of a neighborhood in Managua. And that project actually continues. It's now called Compas de Nicaragua. It's led by a guy named Mike Boudreau, who grew up in Littleton, New Hampshire. Uh, and in the early 2000s, I made several trips to Nicaragua in conjunction with that group, which continues to do work of solidarity and rebuilding. Uh, the guy on the right with the uh, Shiny head is Ash Eames, uh, who, who I was just mentioning, and he's with B. Damaris, and they're holding a cross with the name of someone who had been killed by the Contras. Uh, that's a demonstration probably out in, front of the, out in front of the State House. But that was the type of thing that we were also doing during this, during this period of time. Thanks, Amy. But I, I guess I just to say that the, the travel back and forth to Nicaragua was a very important part of this and bringing back the stories of what 
our tax dollars were actually doing uh, to victimize and torture the civilian popula population of Nicaragua uh, in service of a really vile ideology that the Reagan administration was persecuting. That was a very important part of what was going on. And that was part of why we were able to sway public opinion and move Congress to try to cut off funding. Yeah, this is Bill. I spent time in Nicaragua in 1980. Do you wanna say a little more about that, Bill? Yeah, I was in a group that was uh, supportive of the um, Sandinistas and Shortly after the revolution, we went down in a solidarity uh, action and spent time um, in with, with government officials and took a lot of information back to the states on what they needed. Um, you know, so that, so that the organizations that were supportive of the Sandinistas would have better understanding of the, the material needs down there at that point, because it was really pretty bad uh, shortly after the revolution. Um, before we move on here, I thought maybe folks would like to see a picture of Bill back in the day. Oh, that is much more stuff going on in this. Here we go. There's Bill. Is that a passport photo? That's a passport photo. It's Jesus in a 40 mile an hour wind, right? <laughs> there you go. All right. Um, I'm going to be moving us. Sorry, we didn't get to all the questions. Some because I, honestly, some of them asked of me, I, I, I don't, I couldn't answer. Like, how did they manage going to the bathroom in the trees? I never got to find out. I'll do some research. Um, but I did want to say before moving along here that I will always probably struggle with this question of, am I doing the best I can to make a difference? And while, you know, getting in the paper or getting recognition is not the point, it is, you know, one clue that we're at least making enough noise to be heard. And I did receive an unexpected honor after being arrested. Um, and you're gonna hear that for our dance party tonight, okay? Um, yeah, get ready to dance. I have a few things to tell you before that though. So first join me in thanking everyone for being with us tonight, especially our tellers and our live audience. We love you being here. We're soon to move to the backstory interview where David Frainer is gonna speak one-on-one -on -one with Bill Thompson. But first, let me tell you, our next True Tales Live Zoom show is on Tuesday, April 27th at 7 p.m. You can register at truetaleslivenh.org. We do need tellers for many of our upcoming shows. We especially these days encourage folks to attend uh, one of our monthly workshops on Zoom. They're on, the next one is April 6th, 7 to 8.30. It's a Tuesday night and you can get both feedback on your story and practice telling on the Zoom platform, which is kind of a, it's an animal of its own. So we, it's really wonderful for folks to come. Again, truetaleslivenh.org to register. 
You can watch us on Portsmouth Public Media TV, Comcast Channel 98, on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m., Saturdays at 1 p.m., and anytime as video on demand or as a podcast. TrueTalesLiveNH.org gives you easy access to all of those options. Let's thank some of those who make this show possible. John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, David Frainer, Sarah Beddingstead, Sam Adams, and Kamisha Foley. I'm Amy Antonucci, and before we move to the backstory 15-minute interview, please join us in our new tradition where we take a minute to shake off the Zoom-ness, you know, with a little movement and fun with our True Tales dance party. Tonight we have a different piece of music to dance to. As I was referencing earlier, we're gonna hear New Hampshire area musician Pierce Woodward singing when Amy got arrested, which is about when I got arrested. Um, we've been having a great time with this dance party. So we really hope you'll have your video on and move at least a little. You can even just, you know, nod your head. Just come on, come on, get into it with us. Yes, Sarah and Jennifer, woohoo. All right. Um, you might even want to switch to gallery if you're not there. You might want to stand up, do what you want to do. And John, I'm passing it on to you. You ready? Okay. 